Okay, um, we're finishing up our series today. No one clapped, no one booed. That's probably good. Um, I have these timelines right here that I think I should have handed out the first week, but they'd also even be helpful the last week. So <laughs> um, if some of you want to just come on up and start passing them out, because i got a few more things to say, uh, just have at it. Um, pretend you're interested. Pretend you want this timeline, at least. Yes, exactly. Uh, for our, our new series, and it's... I'm excited about it, uh, one, because we're entering the summer, and summer is a time when we break out of our hibernation, and we get into our uh, yards and start grilling and cooking and feasting, having meals. Um, it's a big part of the summertime. And uh, so this, this series is centered on meals. Uh, it's also centered on Jesus, so it's called Meals with Jesus. And we're going to look at all the meals uh, because the meal is important in the story of the Bible that go all the way back to Melchizedek in Genesis 14 um, where Jesus is having meals with people. And again, because we know you guys are going to also be scattered this summer a little bit, that doesn't mean we slow down. Uh, we, we're still going for it. And we want, we've come up with a tool for you guys. This is done by Alexiana, uh, who's in our women's ministry, who's just fabulous. And She's come up with a um, study guide for this series that's pretty extensive. And it will allow for you to get into the text before the text is preached, and even uh, a post-study uh, after the sermon uh, before you start next week's study. So we have a bunch of those up here. You can come and get them. And we have them in the back, in the lobby, in a shelf uh, for you to take them. So, okay. You guys have timelines. Good. Um, okay, we're, we're coming to the end of Paul's life, and the storyline of his life as we near the end, and it's the storyline of Acts, too, is that Paul must get to Rome. In fact, in Acts 27, verse 24, an angel shows up to Paul and says, Paul, not only must you get to Rome but you're going to stand before Caesar. And then we saw, starting last week, how everything really goes wrong that can go wrong in Paul's life. Um, in Jerusalem, he's almost mobbed to death. Uh, he's put up for trial, falsely accused. Uh, he's almost assassinated. Uh, then he asks Rome for a fair trial. He gets on a ship, headed to Rome. Uh, the ship has a shipwreck, and everyone almost dies. Somehow he survives all this. So let's turn in our text now to Acts 28. We'll start at verse 14. And then also go to Romans 15. Starting at verse 5. And we love to stand for the word of God, so let's stand as we read. Starting with Acts 28, verse 14. This is Luke writing. There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. <laughs> he finally gets to Rome. 
And the brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming. And so they developed a welcome party, essentially, and traveled as far as the Forum of Apius and the Three Taverns. wonder if they stopped for a drink. <laughs> it's kind of crazy, though. They stopped at three, there's three taverns in our Bible. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. And when he got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him, essentially house arrest. And then it talks about how Paul uh, meets with, with all the Jews and the Jewish leaders um, because there's a dynamic thing that's going on uh, in their midst. Um, but then let's skip to the last two verses, for verse 30 and 31. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house, again, this is house arrest, and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now turn over to Romans 15, 922, verse 5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind, one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. This is God's word. You can be seated. Now, as we've been saying, uh, one of the primary reasons for this study is, is, is we're saying that Paul's life matters. And one of the things that, that we've often done is, is we've divorced Paul's life from his writings. And Paul wrote 13 books in our New Testament. And we look at those, those books, those letters, uh, di divorcing Paul's life from them. And, and not only do we divorce Paul's life from his writings, but we also divorce his writings from Paul's world. And these letters that, that Paul writes, they're, they're born out of his life. They're born out of his call. They're born out of his ministry. And they're shaped by a first century world that is intense. That world was quaking. The world was in this massive transition. I mean, something that we don't even hardly think about when we're reading our New Testament, that prior to the New Testament, Rome was just this little regional republic. But with Caesar Augustus, that whole thing changed. This regional republic becomes a world empire, and, and every empire needs a narrative, it needs a gospel, it needs a theology, and, and Rome had that. Its, its, its theology was simple. It declared to the world that Caesar is Lord. And its gospel was, 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 was constantly pronounced in every way that they could pronounce it, that Rome was the world's salvation. And that's the context of, of, of much of our New Testament. Um, and, and think about this. Our New Testaments begin with, and in the days of Caesar Augustus. I mean, we read this every Christmas. And, and our, it, it would be the equivalent of saying, in the days of the Fuhrer, in the days when, when, when our world changed, when, when our world entered this, this massive transition, 
Because this book is a story. And God is communicating to us through a story. And the context of the story matters. The context helps tell the story. And so we must know some things about the world in which Paul is writing. And since we're talking about Rome and Paul is in Rome, did you ever stop and think that we have a whole chapter of our Bible called Romans? Romans. Who wrote Romans? How do we know that? Romans 1, verse 1. Paul says, I, okay, who did he write it to? It's kind of obvious in some ways, but you don't want to uh, make it more than it is. I mean, he's writing to Romans, but not all Romans. He's writing to uh, people who have already trusted Christ, who are following Christ and form these communities of Christ followers in Rome, uh, communities that we call a church. We know that, uh, Romans 1, verse 7. Do we know when Paul wrote this book? We actually do. Romans 15, verse 25, tells us that when Paul is leaving uh, the province of Asia, remember that province that he so badly wanted to get to, he finally gets to it, um, he goes right to the capital city, Ephesus, uh, but then he has to leave and go back to Jerusalem. It's at the end of his third missionary trip, when Paul's going back to Jerusalem, that he's sending this letter to Rome. Why did Paul write this letter? So, I mean, here's even something else I think that's worth considering. How did Christians become Christians in Rome? I mean, Paul hasn't even been there yet. None of the apostles have been there yet. How did that happen? Well, by the time of our New Testament, uh, one thing you need to know is that the, the, the Jewish population in Rome is, is, is quite significant. And this presented some challenges even to Rome. Um, we know that because three times, three times an emperor in a 150-year period, around and during the time of Christ and Paul, expelled the Jews living in Rome. Get out. Uh, I, I have uh, the second time. Read this. As Jews flocked to Rome in great numbers and were converting many of the Romans to their ways. Think about that. Tiberius banished most of them. Who's Tiberius? Look at your timeline. <laughs> He's emperor during the time of Christ. So, so, so that's going on during the time of Christ. I mean, what's, think, think Pharaoh in Egypt. When, 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 when the Israelites increased, what did Pharaoh do? Um, he turned them into slaves. Uh, same thing is almost going on in Rome. And, and Rome didn't make them slaves. They just expelled them. But they kept increasing. Then when you piece together uh, Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost is a Jewish feast. One of those feasts where Jews from all over the world uh, descend upon Jerusalem. Josephus tells us that Jerusalem, a city of 300,000 people at this time, would swell up to 3 million. That's how many Jews are coming and descending upon this city for these feasts. And they come to Pentecost. And Acts 2 verse 10 says, and, and, and Jews from Rome. Um, it even says, and proselytes. <laughs> They're proselytizing people. We're there. 
And they went back. Imagine what they told their brothers and sisters. Or how about 50 days before Pentecost in Acts 2? What, what, what happened? Penta means 50. It's the feast 50 days after what feast? You guys, listen, when we jump from the Gospels and into the book of the Acts, we're not jumping into a whole other world and into a whole other time period. We're talking about 50 days. 50 days before Pentecost, what happened? Passover. What happened on that Passover? Jesus died. I mean, Jesus has been going to all these feasts. So Jews from Rome come to these feasts. They find out, wow, this Jesus is a big deal. Everywhere he goes, people are hanging on every word he says. He's, he's doing things that we've never seen someone do. And more importantly, he's claiming to be the Messiah. They're bringing this stuff back. Then they go to one Passover and they, he's killed. He's crucified by Romans. But the rumor is that he's resurrected. Okay, so... This stuff goes back to all these Jewish pockets of Jewish communities and, and in, in a city like Rome, thousands of Jews are, are, are living there. Hundreds of them are believing in Jesus being the Messiah. Now the third time when a Caesar expels the Jews from Rome, uh, this is in 49 AD by, by the Emperor Claudius. You can look at your timeline if you want. Um, but this too is mentioned in our Bibles in Acts 18 uh, when Claudius uh, expelled the Jews from Rome. Now historians provide two reasons for why uh, Claudius expelled them. The first, um, by a later historian, says the Jews again were growing in number. They became a threat. They're a force. But an earlier historian says, as Tacitus says, Claudius expelled them because of the infighting that was going on over one called Christus. They're fighting about Jesus. And see, this tells me not only the force that the Jews are in Rome, but even more so the force that Christ has already become amongst the Jews in a city like Rome. Now imagine the effect that this would have on a church. All of a sudden, boom, all the Jews have to leave. And all the Gentile Christians, they get to stay. That's a recipe for division. Why do I have to leave? Why do you get to stay? Five years after this edict, Claudius dies, Nero comes to power, he allows Jews to return to Rome, uh, which is why Paul, in his letter to Romans, at the end says, would you greet Priscilla and Aquila? Priscilla and Aquila had to leave Rome as, as Jews, Jewish believers, but now they get to come back, um, which also tells me who the emperor is when Paul writes Romans. It's Nero. That, that's amazing backdrop. 
But now even more significantly, think about the makeup of this Roman church and how it radically changed over those five years. How it went from being predominantly Jewish to being predominantly Gentile. But now imagine these Jewish leaders returning to find other leaders who have moved into their roles. And you can just imagine the conflict that erupts and God's church starts to break down along racial and cultural lines. And if you want to know why Peter's writing Romans, it's not to tell us how we can get to heaven. Yes, he's going to explain how, how Gentiles are, are brought into God's family. And even this is a hard thing for Jews to accept. And it's not by becoming Jewish, says Paul, but it's through faith in Christ. But Paul also has to explain to the Gentiles that you, you guys haven't replaced the Jews as God's special people. Salvation is still first for the Jew, and you Gentile have been grafted in to God's family of Israel. And see, this leads us then to the major purpose and why Paul is writing the book of Romans. It's because the church is starting to break down according to cultural and racial lines. And this is no small matter. I hope no one's sleeping right now. I hope we're ready to digest some realities. It's a tragic thing when the church breaks down according to cultural and racial lines. Because let's start off with the gospel, and I think this is where the problem begins. The, 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 a big part of the problem is that we have reduced the gospel to meat. That God saves meat. And then we reduce his salvation to escaping this world for a better world called heaven. Listen, that is not the biblical gospel. That is a Greek gospel. That is the gospel according to Plato and Socrates. A gospel that's all about me, me, me. Me and God. God and me. And all about escaping this awful material world. This awful material body for an immaterial world called heaven. Who made the material world? Who made our material bodies? Who came to live in our material world, taking on our material bodies? Christ. So he could throw it away? No, so he could redeem it. And by redeeming it, he did this by redeeming us, by, by redeeming and reconciling a people for himself, a new humanity who will partner with him to redeem and reconcile his world that he loves. And this is the kingdom of God. And the gospel that Paul preaches, which we have in the last verse of Acts, is this. And it's a dangerous thing when we turn this into a me thing. It's a we thing. And the we thing isn't for us. It's a we for the world. Read the prophets. 
Isaiah starts his whole thing off. In Isaiah 1, he says, Israel, you're sick from the top of your head to the soles of your feet. You become like Sodom and Gomorrah. And listen to what he writes uh, in, in, in verses 14, 15, 16. He says, your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. I hate it when you gather on Sunday mornings like this. They become a burden to me. I'm, I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening because your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek righteousness. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. It's all over. Amos 5. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings, grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let righteousness roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. It's actually like a wadi. And some of you are going to be in Israel with me in a couple of weeks. And those wadis that go, come down in the most waterless, dry and weary places in the desert are like the Niagara Falls. They killed 11 people just last week. God says, that's what I, I want righteousness to come rolling down like that. And what's Righteousness. You know, I think we often think in our minds that righteousness is, is moral purity. Um, but this word here is the Hebrew word sedek. And sedek does not mean moral purity. The, the Hebrew language has another word for moral purity. Um, sedek means justice. It means to do justice. It most literally means to disadvantage yourself to bring advantage to someone else. In Psalm 96, the, the, the text that was read earlier um, by, by Matt, it, it, it ends this way. It says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns, not Caesar. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord he comes. For he will come to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness. And what the psalmist is doing is painting this picture of, of the nations excited and singing. And not even just the nations, but all creation. The trees, the field, the hills, the waters, all of it is just going to sing when God comes. When a righteousness of God is revealed. And Paul begins Romans 1 and says that righteousness of God that is revealed 
is in Christ. It's in Christ. And just stop and think again what Christ is and who he is and how he is the righteousness of God and brings the righteousness of God, especially when we understand righteousness as justice, as one who disadvantages themselves to advantage other people. I mean, he gave up all of his advantage and he went to such degrees of disadvantaging himself by taking upon himself all of our disadvantage, all of it, so he could advantage us. So we could just wait around and go to heaven and we die? I love what our missions pastor, Matt Stoll, says when he talks about a robust gospel. Yes, it's a gospel that, that uh, vertically reconciles us to God, but, but also horizontally it reconciles races and cultures, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, slave and free. And to get to the bottom line, division cannot exist in God's family along racial lines, cultural lines, gender lines, socioeconomic lines. Because it betrays the heart of God and it damages our mission. We. Because that's what we are. We are a we. We are God's one family. Revelation 5 says that day is going to come when God's family is going to be gathered around Christ, worshiping him, and there will be people from every tribe, every culture, every race. Paul says we're one body. Think about that. Think about when something in your body hurts or is infected. All the resources of your body just rush to that place uh, to bring healing. Paul says we're one temple. God doesn't live in you singular. He lives in us. Paul says we're one new man comprised of Jew and Gentile. We're brothers and sisters. He says we're one bride, the, the bride that Jesus himself died for and is washing and cleansing so he can present us to God without stain, blemish, or defect. We're one. Jesus said the way the world will know me is when you are one. And so Romans 15, 5 to 9, let's put our eyes on that. This is not just a P.S. at the end of a letter. But may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind, with one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, so accept one another as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a slave of the Jews on behalf of God's truth. So that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. And moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, for as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing praises to your name. What a time to be alive. What a time for the church to be the church. 
We need to stop looking to Rome to fix this problem. We need to stop looking to the university to fix this problem. We need to stop thinking political correctness is going to fix this problem. This is all just, these are band-aids. They're outside-in approaches. Uh, What God provides us as his people is an inside-out approach, which starts with our heart. And I just feel like right now we, we, as a church, need to enter a time of humbling and a time of inventory and a time of humility, a time of repentance. Haney, uh, our friend from, from Egypt, he'll be speaking this summer. I remember a couple years ago him telling me there was this... Uh, huge gathering of Christians from all over the world in Jerusalem. And uh, the Jewish Christians got up on stage. They even brought up some Palestinian Christians. They literally got on their knees. And some of them ripped their shirts to say, we are so sorry for our arrogance and our pride in the way that we have mistreated our brothers and sisters. Rabbi Jason Sobel, who uh, preached here um, a few months ago, who I'm good friends with, said he was at this huge Christian gathering in Detroit. And at this gathering, um, he was brought up. And some white Christians, Gentiles, apologized to him for the Holocaust. Do you know how exciting it is to own things? As a white Christian, can I just say some things? Things even in our town, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in the last hundred years, and running right up to recent, they are happening. They are embarrassing. They are damaging to the gospel. And we, in this season, I am calling us, especially those of us who have privilege, leverage, to use our resources to move into this with humility, owning it, and saying we're sorry. And doing something about the injustice in our city. What an opportunity we have to put Christ on display. Or what an opportunity we have to just almost drag his name and his gospel in the mud. I have two sermons this morning. The first one's done. We'll move to the second one. So Paul does get to Rome. We read that in verse 16 of our Acts passage. He lives there under house arrest where he's free to have guests, people coming and going on a daily basis. I think it's a pretty nice setup for Paul. I mean, he he can still do what he's called to do. I could see all these people just 
flowing in, flowing out every single day. He gets to tell people about Jesus, proclaim the kingdom of God. Uh, I I find it too very interesting that here Paul is proclaiming the kingdom of God right under Nero's nose. I mean, that's kind of cool. Um, I don't know how you feel about the ending of Acts, but I I read this and it just feels abrupt to me. It it almost seems anticlimactic because I want to know some things. I want to know, did Paul ever stand before Caesar? I want to know if Paul was ever set free. I want to know even Paul talked about this fourth missionary journey to Spain. Did he ever go on that? And I do want to know how Paul died. And some scholars look at this and and they they, they see it too and, and, and they explain it by saying, well, Luke must have died before Paul died. But I actually think that Luke's ending is actually making an important point. Yes, we've said Paul's life is important. Yes, his life matters. But in the end, I know what Paul wants. Paul doesn't want the spotlight to be shown on his life. He wants his life to shine the spotlight on Christ. And how can I say that? Well, there there are some things that we can piece together about the end of Paul's life. Um, He writes what are called the prison epistles. Um, they're letters that he writes from uh, prison. Ephesians is one of those letters that he writes from this house arrest. Colossians, and probably the latest one he writes, is Philippians. Listen to Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Paul says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear through the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare to do more to proclaim the gospel every single day. Now just stop and think about this. Paul starts this by saying, what has happened to me? Well, what's happened to Paul? He's confined to house arrest. Chained down to a guard every single day. Can't even sleep without someone watching him. Can't get up and go to the bathroom probably without getting permission. Um, And I can just see myself in this situation saying, really God? For everything that I have done for you, this is what I get? How many of us right now in in, in those circumstances would be bitter or resentful or maybe even angry with God? But when you read this letter that Paul writes to the church in Philippians, uh, joy just jumps off the pages throughout the whole thing. And it's right here and even in what he said. I mean, he's happy about his circumstances. Um, even though it's bad and, and, and people meant it for bad for Paul, Paul's saying, do you see the good that's resulted? I mean, verse 13, the, the, the term there, uh, it's not palace guard, it's the Praetorian guard. This is Caesar's elite force uh, that exists to protect Caesar himself. So just think about this. Every day for eight hours, another guy comes in, chains himself to maybe the world's greatest evangelist, and, and, and one by one, these guys are probably coming to Christ. And Paul's looking at this and saying, this would have never happened. If God didn't put me in this prison. Because this is how God works. Do you know what alchemy was? 
Alchemy was the attempt uh, by chemists in the Middle Ages to take lead and to turn it into gold. To take something that was almost use, useless and worthless and, and, and turn it into something beautiful and of great value. I like what one commentator said about this passage. He said, God is the only alchemist. He's the only one who can take something as useless and worthless as a prison and turn it into something awesome and beautiful. Do you know this about God? Do you believe this? That God can take bad situations, bad circumstances, even things like prisons and crosses and, and use them to bring about the forces of redemption, resurrection. He takes our suffering. And over time, he turns that into gold. See, I'm telling you, if, if, if you don't know that, then you will become bitter. Your circumstances will make you sour. But if you do know that, you'll have the joy of Paul. I think Paul only gets to even see a little bit of the goodness that, that he's so excited about. Paul doesn't even know that 2,000 years after he writes that, there's a church in Grand Rapids right now that are reading the things that he wrote and are inspired by the joy that he had in those circumstances. We wouldn't have all the prison letters if it weren't for this prison that Paul, that God put Paul in. And I, I think with all of this kind of stuff, it's all about perspective. I mean, Paul says something even almost crazier in, in verse 19, where he says, this will turn out for my deliverance. He says, yes, your prayers and the, and the Holy Spirit combined with, with, with my circumstances, it's going to turn out for my deliverance. We know Paul isn't talking about his deliverance from the Romans because a few verses later he says, even if I have to die, I will die. In fact, the word there, it shouldn't even be translated deli deliverance, but I understand why, why the translators did this because they're uncomfortable with the word that Paul actually uses. It should read, this is turned out for my salvation. I mean, that's a technical term for Paul. What do you mean, Paul? Your circumstances are saving you? And see, Paul would answer that and say, you know what? God is using these circumstances in my life uh, not only to, to, to bring good in, into other people's lives, but God is using it to save me. Not capital S salvation, but small s. To make me into the person that I need to be. He is spinning my suffering into gold for me. I want this. That when painful circumstances, discouragement, disappointment is pushed into my life, I don't want those things to make me bitter. I don't want those things to make me sour. I want those things to make me sweeter and humbler and more full of joy. And I know it comes down to this question. Who are you, Rod? What are you doing here? What is the aim of your life, Rod? 
What is it that, that, that makes you say that, that if you have this, then I'm really living regardless of what is taken from me? And Paul tells us that in verse 21, he says, for me to live is Christ. That's Paul's definition of life. That's Paul's ultimate aim. This is his driving passion. This is what makes life life for Paul. It's Christ. And don't think this is some pat Sunday school answer because it begins with the word for or therefore. Therefore, for me to live is Christ, which connects us to the previous verse. In fact, the substance of that statement, for me to live is Christ, is in the previous verse, in verse 20, where Paul says, whether I live or whether I die, whether I remain a prisoner or whether I'm set free, my one aim in life is that Christ would be exalted And I love what that word exalted means. It literally means to, to put something on display as, as supremely awesome. That's what Paul wants. And Paul doesn't want us to look at his life and, and, and say, wow, Paul, you have lived such an amazing life. Paul wants us to look at his life and say, wow, is your Christ Awesome. And you know how you do that? By doing verse 21. For me to live is Christ. How would you fill in that statement? How would you fill that in? For me to live is what? Because I don't care what it is. You are bringing glory to that thing that is your aim. I remember years ago, I was at the mall. Walked in, I had to, and I, I could not believe the line that was coming out of one of the stores. I mean, it flowed, flowed. It almost went out the whole building. Guess what store it was? What? Apple. Of course it was Apple. What was, what was everyone doing? They were getting the latest iPhone because for me to live is that iPhone. <laughs> and the glory that that line brought to Apple was glorious. I love what John Piper says. God is most glorified in us. when we are most satisfied in him. And that is how Paul put Christ on display. Because for Paul to live was Christ, which is why he could also say, and to die is gain, because when I die, I get more of Christ. And you know, the people that get to this place in life who prize Christ, whose aim is Christ, their grip on this world loosens, the world's grip on them loosens. Things like stock mar markets and having the latest and greatest and, and, and needing comfort and seeking cool, doing cool, being cool, 
uh, all that stuff just doesn't matter anymore. And even the tough circumstances, uncertainties of life, prison, suffering, even death, it's all seen in a whole new light. Can you say today, for me to live is Christ? And to die is gain. Paul will die. Earliest tradition about his death is different than how I envision Paul to die. It's given to us by First Clement, written either 10 to 30 years after Paul's death. Um, he tells us that Emperor Nero needed a scapegoat for this fire that actually Nero started right in the heart of Rome. Um, he, did, he started this fire so that he could build a palace that would be spread over three of Rome's seven hills. And he needed a scapegoat for the fire and the scapegoat for the Christians. And Clement tells us that a great multitude of Christians were arrested and died torturous deaths, crucified in the streets, thrown to the animals, uh, the lions, during the halftime show at the games, lit up as human torches, lining the streets of Rome. And this earliest tradition tells us that Peter and Paul were part of Nero's spectacle and that before they were martyred, they were both put in prison together. And this was not a nice house arrest situation. This was a dungeon. I took our group to it last year. Um, and, and it was just, it was, a, it was a filthy pit. And it's from here that he writes one more letter to his disciple Timothy. And listen to how he concludes uh, that letter. He says, For I am already be being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award on me that day, and not only to me, but also those who have longed for his appearing. So if first Clement is right, Paul did not die this special, secluded, important death of a Roman citizen. He died a public, torturous, humiliating death with his brothers and sisters, and quite likely with Peter, who we know is crucified upside down. And all this reminds me of those days when, when, when Paul and Peter were at great odds. And Paul talks about this in Galatians 2. And it's almost a little bit cringe factor because he says, you know, I had to oppose Peter face to face. I publicly called that guy out. Paul's matured. And think now of Paul's plea to his Roman brothers and sisters. In Romans 15, so that with one mind, one voice... You may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how I see Paul going out. Going out with his brothers, with his sisters, maybe with Peter, with one mind, one voice, glorifying the God of our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing that unifies us more than suffering. 
And here's Paul in his living and his dying. He put Christ on such display. Because for Paul to live is Christ. And to die is gain. How are we putting Christ on display? How are you? Can I tell you where we get the power to do this? The communion table is set. Before Jesus died, he said, For their sake, I have sanctified myself so that they might be sanctified. Sanctified is the word for set apart. So Jesus is saying this. He's saying, I have been set apart solely for them. My one aim, my one driving passion is for them In other words, what Jesus is saying is for me to live is them, it's you, it's us. We're his prize. And for him to live with live for for him to live was for us, and to die was gain for him, because dying meant he got us. You guys, when this comes into our hearts and into our minds and into our souls, uh, this is what changes us. This is the God of the universe. Loves us this much. God, as we prepare our hearts for communion, as we prepare to take and to eat, to drink the gospel, we are drinking the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. A love that Paul says nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. God, may this change us. May this unite us. May this bring us together. And God, may this allow us to be your people in your world, for the world, for the sake of the world. In Jesus' name.